I'm so excited you decided to take the time to listen to Creatives Talk. My name is Eric Humphrey, and on this podcast, I get the chance to speak with some of the most interesting, inspiring people I've worked with and been mentored by. I hope you enjoy. I'm really excited to be here today with Maurice Marable for Creatives Talk. I had the opportunity to meet him on a set for a branding shoot for BET. And he was the director and at the time the vice president of creative services. And we just connected and have always remained close. And we've had the chance to work on several projects. He has been an extreme influence on my career And I just aspire to one day have the legacy that he's been able to build in the career that he's had so far. So welcome. Damn. Okay. That's a, that's a hell of an intro. (laughs) Mr. Mr. Eric, who is, uh, as y'all know, dope photographer. So, um, I'm trying to think back to what was it that, you know, I I actually want to say it was probably the game. I think were you out there shooting with another photographer? You were working with another photographer? Oh, I didn't even realize you were on the set for the game here in Atlanta at Georgia Tech. Right. Yeah, Derek was shooting. Right. And you guys were doing a spot. And this is when I was like assisting at the time. Yeah. Yeah. It was the game. It was the first year that the game was on BT. Oh wow. Yeah. And and we were doing a promo at Georgia Tech. Wow. I forgot about it. I remember the job that we did in Culver City. Where was the We Got You campaign? And they brought through just everybody. And I was doing behind the scenes photography then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, damn. So it's been a minute, man. I think it's been, it might be more than five years now. Probably seven years, because that's when I first really started getting into this creative field. So, but for you, how did you, where did the creativity start? Like, when did you figure out that you wanted to be a director? You know, I've been asked that question, right? And um, and I mean, look, let's just be real. Let's just talk about it. I've been, like I always say, I've been black a very long time. When you did not grow up, say, in Los Angeles or somewhere close to Los Angeles or New York, uh, and luckily nowadays Atlanta, um, when you didn't grow up in those areas, you had no idea what went behind making, say, a movie a TV show, a TV commercial. I had no idea growing up what a director was. And the thing about it was I always, I've loved movies. I mean, I was that weird kid who loved TV commercials. You know, I used to know all the jingles to TV (laughs) shows, the opening jingles, you know, back when they would make original music and stuff like that. Uh, it was just fascinating with television in general. Like, you know, I mean, you know, nowadays we talk about kids spending too much time in front of the television. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in front of the television, you know, and I don't think it was because, you know, my parents weren't even thinking about, is that good for you or not good for you? And I, you know, I say that, but, you know, when I came home from school, I had to do my homework first. I had to do things first, but... Come Saturday morning, I was up at the crack of dawn. You know, I was watching, I think on Saturday it was cartoons, and on Sunday it was karate movies. And then I was also um, at a very early age, and I would go to the movies by myself. Like, at, I think at eight, around eight or nine years old, nine, around nine or 10 years old, 
I started going to the movies by myself. You know, we lived on a military base. My dad was in the Air Force. Uh, I, I can't forget it. It was, we were living in South Carolina, uh, Charleston. And I wanted to go to the movies. I remember the first time I asked, I said, I want to go to the movies. And my mom was like, nobody can take you to the movies. They said, we're not going to the movies. You're not going to the movies. And I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And my mom finally said, yes, all right, all right, all right. You can go to the movies. <laughs> right? And I was, man, I felt so good. And, you know, my mom gave me some money, told me I could only have one popcorn. You know, like, uh-huh. you, know, you can have one drink. You know, I wish I could tell you what movie it is. I cannot remember. I'm sure it was a Disney movie. I'm sure it was something like Herbie the Love Bug or something, something like that. But I, I just remember walking to the movie theater. And I'm in the movies. I'm watching movies. I buy my ticket. I go inside. I'm sitting and watching this movie. And at one moment, I turn for something. And I realize that my older brother is sitting in the back. But I pretend like he's not there. And I keep watching the movie. And then I walk home. And so basically my mama sent my brother to watch me. So he had followed me all the way to the movie theater. Followed me, you know, stayed in the movies. And then followed me home. And so it's just moments like that that I think back to my mama. And I go like, little did she know she was supporting a greater dream at that time. And little did I know that that was going to be my dream. So when did you realize that was the dream and that was what you wanted to pursue? When it was time to figure out what I was going to do after high school, right? You know, when your parents start going, uh, you need to figure this out, bro. I talk about them. They, my mom and dad, you know, they grew up in the Jim Crow South. You know, they're from outside of, they're, they're from Georgia. They're from a small place called Boston, Georgia, which is, which is about, 35 minutes outside of Valdosta, Georgia, next to a small town called Quitman, you know, next to a town called Thomasville, (laughs) you know. So when you start to break it down and you go to my mom and daddy's space where they grew up, it's next to nothing but trees and cotton fields and corn fields and tobacco fields. And, And, you know, my parents were, you know, sharecroppers to a degree, meaning, you know, the Marable family, you know, were farmers and they owned a lot of land and, and stuff. But, you know, my, my mother to make money, you know, for like things like shoes or clothes or anything, you know, back, back in those days. And that's when families were 13 deep, you know, you know, my mother would go do day labor over the summer, you know, on farms. But my parents, like I said, back in those days, you didn't have an opportunity to dream too big, you know, you know, what made, you know, black families proud back then was being able to feed your family, you know, to be a man was to be able to take care of somebody and get them through hard times. That was it. That's the goal. And so, you know, my dad, uh, hard man, man, grew up hard, you know, joined the military. And I always joke, I think that's the first thing that when I think about marketing, and I think about commercials and I think about dreams. You know, one day my dad saw something that said, do you want to see the world? And that hook, line, sinker got him. He got <laughs> him out of Georgia. You know, it got him across the world to a place called Japan. You know, he comes back. He picks up my mother and said, let's go. You know, and it was that dream of his 
you know, that made everything possible for me, my brother, my sister. And so when, when I think about when I made that decision, I always, when I made a decision to be a filmmaker, I always go back to when my parents made a decision to build a better life because you can't have, it takes two generations. It takes, it takes his parents to say, you got to finish your education to him to use that education to give me a bigger opportunity. Were your parents supportive in your creative endeavors other than outside of like allowing you to go to movies, allowing you to watch (laughs) television? Like, did they actively, when you really started developing this, this idea that you wanted to be a director, were they like, this is the direction you should go, being that they came from a time where that wasn't even a possibility? No. All right, first, you know, like, look, look, I, I just told you this heartwarming story about my parents, right? But the reality of it is, is underneath that story is survival. You know, at the end of the day, my dad could only see survival. You know, as much as my parents were like, you can be anything you want to be. Mm-hmm. You just got to work hard. You got to be anything you want to be. You just got to work hard. You got to be better than the next dude, right? You know, and, and you know, for people of my generation and maybe a little younger, they've all heard that. You got to be twice as good. You got to mm-hmm. be all But at the end of the day, they want you to get a job. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Go get you a job. You know, take care of, uh, pay your bills, you know, uh, have a career. So when it came time to tell my parents when I was in high school and I was trying to decide on what I wanted to study in college, I, again, wanted to figure out how to be involved in not even making TV shows or film, commercials, you know, and I used to write in high school. I used to write poetry and short stories, and I was just that kid, you know. And um, and so I thought the the best way to get there was through marketing. Okay. Right. And so I remember telling my parents, I figured it out. I I I want to go to school for marketing. My dad was like, "What? <laughs> marketing? What?" So my dad was like, "No, no, 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 no." You need, you need to get you a job. You need to figure something else out. So I was like, oh, okay. And, you know, here's the thing. You can disagree with your parents back in those days, but you also didn't know the world, right? So you take their counsel. You know, you you like, okay. My dad did not believe that creativity was a means to feed your family, mm-hmm. right? That's not how you do it. That's uh-huh. not, you know, so that's all well and good. And so I changed majors and I decided to be an accountant, right? Because my favorite uncle was an accountant. <laughs> he cool. Uh-huh. So I'll, I'll be an accountant. Had no idea what accounting really was, but I'm going to be an accountant. So I went to school for accounting. Uh, hated it. Okay. Hated it. Dropped out. Dropped out of college. And so what did you do when you dropped out? You know, there's something in the fact that children, I think, subconsciously, become their parents and they follow the parents. You know, we see it all the time. Like there could be a legendary actor and he's got three kids, they're all good actors. Mm-hmm. And every one of those kids swore they weren't going to be an actor. And guess what happened? So I ended up in the military. I ended up in the Air Force. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah, I needed to escape. I needed to figure things out. Uh, I didn't know who I was, but also I couldn't go home. It wasn't like I can go home and just lamp on my daddy's couch and go, I'm trying to find myself. <laughs> oh, you didn't have that opportunity? Oh, they weren't like, come home? Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just trying to figure, I'm going to lay here 
I'm going to just figure things out. Y'all don't mind if I, you know. No, that was not my folks. So I, uh, you know, and also my folks taught me to be responsible. And if it's your life and it's your journey, you own it. Here's the thing. You can't be successful by yourself. You know, there's either going to be a mentor. There's going to be somebody that's going to point you to somebody. Somebody's going to introduce you to somebody. You know, all those things. But your success ultimately is on you. Nobody else is going to give you success. It's not like, you know, they can point you and do all that. But my father was very big on the idea that no matter what you do in life, you have to own it. And, you know, and if you fail, it's your failures. If you succeed, it's your success. So I I gained, I had a really strong work ethic just being raised by my parents. And then by joining the military, it even strengthened it. Um, And also joining the military taught me a lot of leadership skills that, you know, I may have had some of those, but it really kind of honed it for me. So, you know, I joined the military. I'm trying to be easy, breezy, because, you know, my dad, I mean, it was like my dad was in corporate America. My dad would leave the house, go to work in the morning at eight or nine. He'd be home at five, Uh you know. We lived all around the world. Life was good. You know, I grew up in Germany for a good part. My mother would take us on these adventures, you know, up the Rhine River. We'd go to Holland. We'd go to, you know, Berlin. You know, we'd go to Spain. Like, you know, like, you know, so you're a kid, a black kid who is in elementary school, going to junior high school, and you're just out there traveling and meeting the world to the point where I just thought that's what people do, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And as worldly as I thought my experiences were, I wasn't still worldly, worldly. But here's the thing, I went back, I was in the military, I, I tried to take the easy road, cut to, I sign up, and I find myself in a combat communications unit. I was like, I, I, what do you mean? I thought this is the Air Force. I just- Uh-huh, like you fly planes, right? Yeah, you just, yeah, you know, what, what are we doing? And uh, long story short, I spent some time in Honduras, and then I finally spent time uh, doing the first desert shield out in the desert, right? And so you're out in the desert, and I'm like, it's a hundred and I don't know, I'm, I can't even count how many degrees it was. It was hot. When you talk about Iraq invaded Kuwait, right? Yeah. I was on the I was on the ground, boots on the ground, within a week. Oh wow! You know, I was there before it was real news. You know, and then the buildup happened. And when you're sitting in the desert. And you're talking about Scud missiles and you're talking about uh, chemical attacks and, you know, all this stuff. You're like, is this really what I want to do? <laughs> I really want to be this dude right now. And at the same time that this was going on, I was also having a fascination with Spike Lee. This brother just kind of like hit the scene and he was loud and he was screaming and and he was, you know, talking about um, black stories and black people to tell these stories, and and he was such a a lightning rod for me at the time. And the only director, to be quite honest, that I really heard of or kind of knew of uh, growing up was Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Right. He was a household name. He was a brand. It was Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg. And E.T. and you see this stuff. But 
I didn't really see or was never given the the um, same access to black filmmakers. And Spike was kind of like the first time I saw that, and which pushed me to dive deeper into other black filmmakers. Um, and I was like, that's what it is. That's what I want to do. So you're sitting in the desert, and that gave you time to reflect on what you really wanted to do. And then Spike Lee was the guy that kind of inspired that, brought that spark back. He brought that spark. Well, he, he made it, he made me understand it was possible. Okay. You understand? I mean, like, and, you know, I petitioned to get out of the military early. So how, when you sign up, how much time do you? I was supposed to do four years. I got in three and a half. I just got out six months early. Okay. And uh, I went back to Georgia State University to the film program at Georgia State. I was at Georgia State for the account, doing accounting. Okay. So I went back to school, uh, but this time studying film. Um, and, you know, there was such an energy going on in Atlanta at that time. And not necessarily film energy, but just kind of black excellence. And, yeah. and the idea that whether it's your time or not your time, you can make it your time. There was a, there was a, a just a raw power that you could feel. And uh, I was hanging out in the AU Center and, you know, people were making shorts and, you know, people were making independent films and most of them were horrible. <laughs> but <laughs> they were creating. But they were creating and they were speaking and they were, and they were just trying to say something, you know. And Spike Lee, who went to Morehouse, was always somewhere speaking. And there was a moment, there was a slight obsession. And if, if Spike Lee was speaking within an hour of Atlanta, anywhere I was there. Oh, wow. I was there. I mean, he didn't know it. Uh -huh. you know, but, I, but when you really want to succeed at something, you really want to get educated, it, it, it should be such a strong focus that it could look like obsession. Yep. You know, and... And I was in college and a movie came to, to town, a little small independent movie that Spike Lee was producing called Drop Squad. I begged to get on this movie. Uh, and I went down there, knocked on the door, said, you know, do you have any positions, any PA position, anything? They were like, nope, ain't got nothing. I just kept coming back. You got anything today? Nope. You got anything today? Nope. And then eventually somebody, I got hired to be, uh, I got hired as an intern back when you could legally do that uh -huh. to assist one of the producers, uh, which her name is Shelby Stone. She's still out there producing. She produces a lot of stuff. And it was my first experience like being around film. Even though I was studying in college, I was around film and I was around black filmmakers. It was, it was an awesome learning experience and I met some great people who changed my life and when that film was over when the production was over Butch Robinson who was one of the writers of the original short film that this was based on and the producer of the film uh, said hey we need somebody to take uh, drive a truck back to New York with the office equipment and all this stuff and I was like yeah I'll do it <laughs> 
And uh, yeah, I we packed that U-Haul truck and I drove that U-Haul truck. I've never been to New York. Drove okay. that truck to New York. I was like that country boy. Man, <laughs> I came through the through the Holland. No, uh, not the Holland Tunnel. I came through the Midtown Tunnel. Okay. Into the city. I was scared. I was like, this tunnel's too small. It's too small. I can't get the truck. It's, it's too small. <laughs> drove, when I drove into the city, I just remember thinking like, oh, Crazy, yeah. like, you know, like it was just buildings, and you know, they just like in the movie, you start looking up. Oh shit! Uh huh. And this shit is dirty. <laughs> <laughs> There's trash everywhere, right? And, and I took the, um, yeah, man, and I took that truck and I made it to the office, which was in Soho, and we unloaded the truck and. Butch was like, hey, we need somebody to work in the office, you know, to finish the post-production of the movie. You want to, you want to, you want the job? And you're still in school at this time, though? I'm still in college. Okay. And I was like, and they were like, now, you know, this is illegal now, but he wasn't being illegal. He was looking out and Butch could sense, he knew what my dream was. And there was another person who was the production designer on that movie. Her name is Ina Mayhew. And Ina and Butch together hired me. They both paid me $500 a month, $1,000 a month, making $12,000 a year in New York City. <laughs> all right. So where were you living? How were you surviving? Well, first of all, I accepted the job and I immediately, well, before I accepted the job, let me back up. They offered me the job. Mm-hmm. $1,000 a month. I'd already dropped out of school once. So I, I called my mom. And I said, hey, I got this um, job opportunity in New York. You know, um, but it means I have to drop out of school again. And I was so, like, embarrassed to make this call. A little shame to make this call. You know, um, because my parents didn't go to college. Yeah. You know, so the idea of your children going to college was was it's huge. Huge and paramount and it meant success for them. Yep. You know. And my mom said, Well, those buildings aren't going anywhere. So if it's as hard to get into the film business you say it is, give it a shot. You can always go back to school. And what's your dad say? Oh, we didn't have that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't about to have that conversation, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I'm talking about, I'm a grown man, kind of, I mean, uh-huh. I've been in the military, you know, exactly. I've been but I still wasn't about to, <laughs> look, man, you still want your parents' approval. Yes. And I knew he wasn't going to approve, so I was like, let me not even go down that road. So I flew home that Friday night, packed up my apartment, told my roommate, I'm out. And he was like, what? Uh-huh. I gave money for the rent for one more month's rent. So I'm out, packed up, drove my uh, furniture that I had to my parents' house in Savannah, four hours away that Sunday. Packed it up. I mean, put it in, in, in my parents' house and was on a plane Sunday night and was at work Monday morning. Wow. So just to get $12,000 a year in New York, around what year was this? 
Oh, uh, so I could be wrong. And so if any historians are out there trying to check my facts, <laughs> I could be a little off. Uh, but it was somewhere around 92, 93, around 93. So is that to just give some context? Like 93, 93, 94, somewhere around there. 93, 93. It's to, to give context, at 93, what does $12,000 a year get you in New York? This is what it got me. And this is what's beautiful about the journey. And when you let everybody in on your journey, people, people help you find a way to get there. You know, so, I, you know, when I hear people where they're like, I can't, I don't understand it. I, 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 don't, I don't know. You know, I just feel like when you let everyone know and you're sincere and you don't care. I, don't, I didn't care if I didn't eat. I didn't care if I didn't go out and, and, and drink with folks. I didn't, I didn't care. All I cared about was learning the craft of filmmaking. That was it. And that brought me enough happiness and energy and spark. And so for me, the house of Osman didn't mean anything. And, you know, somebody from that movie in Drop Squad had an a in-law who had a rent-controlled apartment in the heart of Chelsea. Oh, wow. Right? And said, well, I have this one more bedroom, but my, my other friend is, is going to rent the other bedroom. So if you guys can split it, it was $500 a month in the heart of Chelsea. So 500 a piece for, or 500 total? Oh, okay. 500 a piece. Oh, wow. So now I'm in this apartment. I only have $500 left. I, I would just eat at the office. I would eat when they would bring lunch in and, and stuff, you know. I, you just find a way. You know, and, and, and then I started PAing. And then once we finished that movie, and here's the other thing. I took all the stuff about Spike Lee, right? And, and, and I'll never forget when I told my father that when my father found out that I was going to film school the, the second time around, he literally said to me, what do you think? You're going to be another Spike Lee? And he didn't say that as an encouragement. Mm-hmm. You know, it was his own fear talking, but he tried to put so much doubt inside of me. And then cut to literally six months later, I'm in an edit room with Spike Lee. So how did you move past your father kind of discouraging you to continue to pursue your dream? Like a lot of people, especially when it comes from someone that they're close to and their father and their parents, like that is enough for them to be like, you're right. Because you want their approval. How did you push past that Here, here's the thing that I've that I've been fortunate to learn and also that I that I practice and that I believe in and to be a creative means disappointment you can't let me back up for a second it's like when you think about story and characters within a story you have to reflect you have to look at your own story, your own journey. And you have to start to think about who's writing my story. Is it my mom? Is it my dad? Is it my teacher? Is it my family legacy? Who's writing my story? And what character am I playing in my story? Am I a sidekick in my own story? Am I the best friend in my own story? Am I the hero? Am I the anti-hero? Am I the villain? Like, who am I in my story? 
And until you decide to write your own story, until you decide to be the lead in your own journey, it means nothing. And I think, and the only way to get there as a creative is that at some point you're going to have to disappoint somebody. And I think at some point, for some children, for some young adults, for some college students, the first place is to disappoint your parents. Because you don't really disappoint them. You just have to disobey them. Yeah. You know, and any revolution, anything great, anything fresh has never happened with status quo. So for me, there was a moment where all the things my parents taught me about being responsible, owning your own, owning yourself. Um, don't ever take no crap from nobody. You know, all those things that they tell you, they actually think that you're not going to use that on them. <laughs> but there is a time where you got to own yourself and you got to be the man or the woman who stands out in front. And you got to believe in yourself and have conviction. And, and um, something I just believed. I just believed in myself. And, um, you know, and whether, and in that journey, man, I have been homeless. And I'm not talking desolate homeless. I'm talking about like sleeping on friends' couches. Yeah. You know, I've had furniture repossessed. I've had just hard times, man. I've had times I had no, no money. Times where I'm trying to find change in old clothes and pants and pockets. And this is prior to getting to New York and also being married and having a kid. Like, I've had ups and downs like that. In the career. In the it's career. like a roller coaster. You know, it's a roller coaster. And not once did I think that this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. So you knew no matter what you were going through, there was never a point where you're like, maybe I made the wrong decision or maybe I've done all I can do and I need to try something different now. There have been, there, there was one moment where I thought I'd have to go back to Atlanta to recalibrate or go back home to recalibrate. And I remember, and this is when I was working with the production company Drop Squad in New York after they brought me back. Because again, I was only making $1,000 a month. And I remember going to the office one day and going to Butch and saying, you know what, I think I, I might need to go back to, to uh, back home for a little bit. And he was like, really? I was like, yeah. He said, oh. Two things happened that day. One, I remember going to get lunch and I came back in the office and the office was full of brothers older than me. Mm -hmm. And just like, like in the movies, one by one, they started singing, he couldn't make it. <laughs> So, uh, so he's going back to find what, an easier place in time on the midnight train to Georgia. Oh, wow. <laughs> it, was, it was, on one hand, the most embarrassing, hurtful moment, right? And on the other hand, it was the most loving moment I've ever had in my life. These brothers were like, you sure about this? We thought you was tougher than this. Uh -huh. We thought you was built for this. 
and then Butch Robinson wrote a check for my rent. Oh, wow. And I never left. So what do you think he saw in you that he was willing to, to actually write a check? Because there's people I'm sure that you've met along your career that say they want something, but you might not necessarily be willing to write that check. But then there are other people that you've met and they say they want something, you see something in them like they just need a little bit of help to get through this hump. What do you think it was he saw in you? That I was basically willing to do anything, you know? I mean, like, I would sleep at the office. I'd work 18 hours. I'd do whatever it took, you know, to get the job done, to do what I had to do. Uh, I was very focused. I was just focused. And I wasn't a big complainer. Yeah, man, it was like, that's what we got to do. Let's do it. We got to take that hill. We got to take that hill. And also, you know, I'm coming from a military background. Yeah. You know, so there's just something about the mission, something about getting it done. Yeah, man. And it was just, I think that's what they saw, that I was about it. It wasn't, it wasn't, wow, this is great to be here. You know, there's some fandom in the sense of like, well, I can't believe I'm here. But the work had to get done and I was going to do the work, you know. And I, I, I was, yeah, man, I was, I was going to drag that dream. You know what I mean? Like it was going to happen. It was just going to happen. <laughs> and I found myself learning. Like, so now I'm in the production office. So I ended up becoming a production coordinator and a production manager, you know. And I was learning the accounting side of production. <laughs> it's funny how life does that, right? Exactly, dude. I was, <laughs> and I still was like, I'm trying to be a filmmaker. I'm trying to be a filmmaker. And uh, one day Spike Lee took a break because I was now, by this time in my career, I was working with Butch on doing commercials that Spike Lee was directing and we were traveling all over the place doing commercials. One day, we just weren't working anymore. And I just had my son and I was, I was like, oh, damn, I got no money, I got nothing. Um, and we blew through our savings and, and you know, the universe has a way of looking out. I was standing on the train platform and um, train, you know, I was telling my ex-wife, who's now my ex-wife, I was telling her like, there was this poster, HBO poster. Uh, I wouldn't say it was Oz. It was the first season of Oz or something like that. Oh, wow. And I was like, yo, that's, HBO's dope. Man, I love to work there. Train pulls up, door opens, and there's this young lady who works for HBO sitting right there. How did you know she worked for HBO? Because she was a friend of my ex-wife's. Oh, wow. And it was, it was like, oh, my God, you just said that. She sent me some job listings. I looked at them. They had a job open for a production manager. End up going over, you know, she put a word in for me and I was freelancing over there. So I was like, okay. And then I saw the writer producers who do the promos and they were writing these spots and, you know, editing these spots, sound designing these spots. And, and in some cases going out and shooting these spots. It was the, th- it was the closest thing that I saw because, you know, when you think about Spike Lee, this it's a big machine, right? Uh-huh. Movie studio. <clears throat> uh, it just seems kind of big. Like you want to do it, but it's like, oh my God. This was like, I can do this. So I just begged. Like, you know, I started going to all the creative directors, like, yo, can I can I write a spot? And they were like, man, get out of here. You so I, I just want to back up a little bit. So before the HBO, going over the HBO, had you ever done or learned how 
to like do spots or do anything when you were over at Spike Lee? Because you said you were doing the accountant side, right? Yeah. No, I was not directing. But did had you been exposed to it? Had you like picked up on? Well, yeah. I mean, look, I was. I was. It's two things. One, you know, I'm on set every day. I'm traveling the world with a with a famous director, so I'm seeing it. Yeah, I'm seeing it happen. The other thing was I immersed myself with people who love film. So what are you doing? You're watching movies. You're talking about movies. You're living movies. You're breathing movies. You know, talk about technique. You know, I it's that it's that youthful age where everything is. You know, like snap, yeah. right? And you're arguing convention, and you're and you're, and you're talking about what's fresh and what's not fresh, and and music videos were popping, and I was peeing on music videos, and I'm looking at at at, at visual aesthetics and how people were doing this and how people were doing that. Hype was doing all kind of stuff that I had not seen um, before. You know, uh, I started figuring out who Spike Jones was. I started figuring out who. Mark Romantic was. So, you know, like you start thinking about Michelle Gondry, like it's all starting to just pop, you know, but I hadn't directed since college. And so when I, yeah, when I got to HBO, when I was begging people to let me, and I was just talking about writing spots and kind of cutting. Everybody kept telling me no, everybody kept telling me no, everybody kept telling me no, everybody kept telling me no. And finally I begged this, I bugged this one creative director so much she finally said, all right. And she gave me a couple of next ons. So, you know, next on is next on. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Is next on is Gary Shandling. Da 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 da. Next on. Man, I thought it was my opus. I was like, <laughs> I was like, I was writing, should I say next on? Should I say next on? You know, like, <laughs> you know. Because, you know, you go, you know, you get your announcer, you have your little copy. Because it's next on, you say, the, it was a formula. It's like, next on, then you say the name of the thing, and then you write one line that describes it, right? Uh-huh. So you, you know, I was like, and I did two of them. I was like, yeah. And then you cut some footage with it. And, you know, I did it, and it was, it was decent, you know. I didn't know it was the, like, chop liver of work, uh-huh. you know. But I was just, <laughs> I was happy. And... I mean, I can go on in detail, but I just kept begging. And there was a moment, and I was still freelancing there. Yeah. And I went off. I don't know if I should tell the story, but I'm going to tell the story. They liked me in the production department, where the person who was running the production department made me a permalance freelancer, right? A permalancer. And I said, look, you know, I'm scared to be a permalancer because I was doing that at this one company, you know, Drop Squad, and when it worked right up, I didn't know anybody else, so I didn't have any other work. And I feel like I need to always work with some different people. And she said, you know what? Just let us know when you need to go off and do something, and then you come right on back. Okay. I was like, really? <laughs> so I was like, all right, all right. So bet. Spike calls Butch, Butch calls me and says, hey man, we got a job. Let's go do this job. I said, all right, cool. While I'm gone, this this person gets fired. They told you you could do... Right, right, she gets yeah. fired. I get a call from the vice president of the department who says, hey, when you get back in the office, I'm going to let you know so-and-so's been fired. You need to come see me. I said, okay. And basically, he was telling me that I no longer have a... They don't do that. They don't, I no longer have a job there. And they'll hire me whenever they need me, but... You know, yep. I said, okay. 
So I remember finishing the job spike and I go back to HBO. I'm going to tell you right now, I avoided that vice president like the plague. <laughs> I, I would go into work. I shut my door. Simon's would go up. I can do that. I got it. I'll do it. Zip. Accounting, the, they just always saw me, so they just assumed I was working. I just get my check, but I was working. Like, yeah, I'll do whatever. I'll do that. Like I was. Eventually, he ran me down and told me, "You, you, you ain't got no job. I'm gonna give you two weeks, <laughs> and you need to move on." Okay. And um, and a, a different creative director asked me what I wanted to do, and I told him. But I'm resourceful. I started looking for work, and I got a job offer from Nickelodeon to be like the head of production for the promo department over at Nickelodeon for the promo department. Oh, wow. I didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to be creative. Uh-huh. But I have a family. So I was like, all right, I was going to take the job. HBO came back to me and said, what do you want to be here for? What do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a writer-producer. They made me a writer-producer on the spot. Wow. But you had never, only thing you wrote or produced were the next one. Was the next ones. But they gave you the opportunity. They gave me the opportunity. And I'd say within a year and a half, I went from being that freelance production manager to being the creative director overseeing um, originals and movies. Wow. So at HBO, I remember once you told me this story, and I don't know whether this was when you were over the department, like became a writer-producer, or when you you had already gone off to freelance. But Entourage was my favorite show. Ever, like, or one of my favorite shows ever that HBO has done. And I remember you told me that he was like, oh, yeah, I created the, the opening for it. And like the opening, last, I think Entourage was like seven to eight seasons. That same opening was in every season. And you told me that you went out and shot it all and then came into HBO. You had shot an opening, spent the money like exactly how it is in the opening of the show. And then went to HBO, like, here you go. This is my idea for it. And they were like, they love it. Didn't see any more people. And you got the job to actually shoot it with the cast at HBO. It was, uh, I had left. I was no longer working at HBO. I had left. I got a, a call asking that I want to pitch on the main title sequence for this new show called Entourage. I had never done that before. I was like, yeah. And I'll, I'll do it. I mean, yeah, I'll pitch it. And I had just started a company called Brown Bag with uh, Charleston. It's kind of like the first thing. And I said, yeah, I'll do it. And then I'm not, a, I'm not a computer person. I don't work, you know, in the flame and do effects and all that kind of stuff. I'm practical. Uh-huh. So flew out to LA, uh, rented a car, which is the car that you see in the uh, thing, rented a car. And I drove around Los Angeles and shot the 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 thing in my in my vision. It changed it changed some when I got money. Yeah. You know. Uh, but I went and I shot it and, and this whole thing. And then I went back, got a favor from a, a design company who gave me their junior, junior designer. <laughs> and you know, we went to the room and I told him what I wanted to do, told her, and um, we 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 built it out. Right? And then I flew back to LA for the pitch. And I was sitting in there, and there were other companies. No, there were other companies there at that. Yeah. Some big ones. And, uh, you know, they have boards and stuff. Right? So when I go in, I go in and I just show them my board and I show them the, the thing. And they're like, hmm, okay. 
So you how you mm-hmm. so you did this already? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I leave. I'm in the parking lot and I get a phone call. Uh, don't go in there. So I have to wait because the other company's in there. The other company leaves. I get called back then, and they're like, "You got a job, man." You're like, you did this? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so then we just set a date and with the cast, and I reshot it with the cast. So what gave you, like, the idea to go out and shoot it and pitch it to them that way versus the traditional way that people come in with storyboards? and Because I, don't, I didn't know what was traditional. You know what I mean? Like, I had never done it. Yeah. And so, you know... Part of it was a learning thing for me. Like, how do you do this? You know, um, I've had many companies come and pitch me stuff, but I've never been the person who had to go do the pitch. And again, I'm a shooter, so I, I was like, I got to shoot this. And that's just, that's just what it was. And then, you know, people found out they just blew up. It just blew up. And uh, it was great. What was first, openings or campaigns? Oh, campaigns. Because when I was at HBO, I was directing a lot of campaigns and I was overseeing those campaigns. So like every Six Feet Under campaign was was something that I co-wrote, either wrote, co-wrote, but I directed all of them. Wow. You know, um, and yeah, and then promos for V, promos for just a bunch of shows. So when did you decide that I'm ready to walk away from HBO and they create, in my opinion, some of the best original content out there. And I'm going to go off and create my own company. Like, when did that transition happen? To be current, topically, it's like Kyrie Irving, right? (laughs) And I I say that because I understood exactly why that brother had to move on. Okay. There's a moment that everybody else's success is not your success. You know, and there's a moment where you have to test your metal. You have to test to see what more could I do. And also, there's also a feeling after a while that all this work and sometimes art and sometimes creativity that you're sweating and building and and staying up till three, four in the morning for is for a company that makes billions of dollars. You know, it's promoting a show where everybody on that show gets paid a lot more than I do. Yeah. And and they should to a degree because they built the content that we're working with, right? They built it, they created it. So I'm not at all, but I think anybody who believes themselves should believe that they should be their own boss at some point, you know, and that they should reap the benefits of their creativity. And when your creativity is an hourly salary, uh, I just got disenfranchised, that's all. But I'm assuming at this point, you had your family, you had people you're taking care of. What gave you the lack of fear to say, I'm gonna take this this leap of faith and walk away from this, this steady check to create on my own and do it Oh, I didn't say I, I didn't have fear now. now. <laughs> I was fearful. Okay. I, I was nervous. I was scared. I was all those things. But uh, you, what options do I have? 
right? What options really do you have? If you, if you really want to create something for yourself, you don't have other options. You just don't. You know, I could sit in an office and slowly kill myself in the sense of my work, right? I'm just not that dude. I just wasn't built that way. My parents didn't build me that way. There's a moment where you outgrow your situation. Yeah. No matter how big and how wonderful and how well they paid, (laughs) (laughs) you just kind of outgrow it. There's not a, a stop. The spark was dimming. The push to come in and do better was dimming. It was, it was, I was burning out. Yeah. And I needed to rekindle something. So when you went off on your own, were you able to rekindle? And what would have been, what were some of the biggest things you learned when you went off in your own? And what were some of the, the biggest challenges you faced? I had to think of myself differently. The biggest challenge I faced, I think, was learning how to be successful again learning how to build my, build the new muscles, learning a new trade. You know, when I left there and started this company one, I never had a company before. And honestly, this company failed within 18 months. Okay. No, uh, it was, it was kaputs, which was another great learning thing. So, but this is a company that you did the opening for Entourage yeah. Under. Yes. But, you know, the idea was we were going to go do commercials. It was a commercial production company. And I just had the wrong team. Yeah, I just made mistakes as a young artist trying to be a business person. And you have to decide on who you're going to be. You're going to be the business person, you're going to be the artist. And I wasn't first enough on both sides at that moment to be able to combine those two things and find the right people and, and work with the right people. And it just didn't work out. It just didn't work out. And the skills that I had to learn was I was so used, I was so used to the comforts of HBO and the comforts of this work and 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 having total control over what I was directing or shooting. And by this time I had a great reputation, so people aren't really questioning me. And then now I'm in a world of commercials where I have to bid on jobs where there are three or four other directors going for the same job. And I got to get on the phone and pitch a vision, which I never had to do before. I just had to pitch an idea. I didn't have to pitch a whole thing or take somebody else's work and then just spit it back out to them, but in a way that makes it think that they're great, right? When (laughs) when it really sucks. And, and, but also how you put your own spin on it, but they don't really want your spin, but you got to make them believe they want your spin. It was crazy. Um, I remember the first treatment I wrote and the first pitch on the phone I did together. The agency called back my reps and were like, that was horrible. Oh, wow. And I was like, I need to see all these other pitches. And I immediately go to work and I immediately figure out what it is. And you learn. And then you, I stopped losing and I started winning. But it took about a year and a half to like consistently win. You know, so, you know, I did that. And then when my company didn't do well, I just signed with a company called Believe Media. And I just did commercials. And I did commercials at that, from that time, probably for about eight, 
years. And yeah. So it was Believe Media, your company, or was it a company you were now working for? Oh, it was a company. It was another person company I was now signed to and working for, and they were repping me in commercials. Oh, okay. So you were kind of like a freelance director under yep. Believe Media. Yep. And you did that for eight years, and then we came after that? Crap, no. What's even that? I was making really good money in commercials for about four or five years. And then the crash happened. What, 2008? Yep, 2008, 2009. I remember I had three, like, three commercials lined up. And one by one, they all went away. Yeah, that's the first thing that goes when the economy crashes right. is marketing dollars. And I was not working. And then I was getting jobs here and there, but the economy was bad. And then that's when BET called and said, hey, can you please come BET and help us change the look of this network? And I did it on the caveat that I could still do commercials if I were to go over and do that. So I ended up being the vice president of creative services and I was still doing commercials. So I was doing two jobs. Yeah, I was doing two jobs and, and I was really passionate about changing the look of BT because I was one of those people who talked about BT and how bad BT was and the type of program where, and somebody, uh, Mr. Kendrick Reed said, are you just always going to be the brother who talks about it? Or are you going to be the brother who changes something about it? And he was right. So I dusted my stuff off and I went to BT, uh, but I kept one foot there and one foot on the outside world. You know, um, I learned my lessons in life and you know, I gotta, I can't, I'm not a corporate guy anymore. You know, I gotta be some, an artist to a degree. I have to be a director to a degree. I have to solve things creatively to a degree. And, and so I did that for like two and a half years, three years. Uh -huh. And once I felt like it's all I could do, I got to where I felt like it was better than what I left, which I'm, it is, it was at the time. I went back out into the world and I started a new company called Brim and Brew. And we kind of hit fast. I mean, you know, Brim Brew, we were doing campaigns for CNN, um, NBC's, uh, different, just different networks and uh, content. And we were just working. We were just, we were working for a lot of people. So what do you think made the biggest difference from Bremen Brew, the four or five years at Believe, and when you originally started Brown Paper. Oh, Brown, 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 Brown Bag. Uh, the different experience. Yeah. Managing uh, a department, uh, learning the business of commercials while I was there, learning the business side of it. Um, just getting better, man, getting stronger, just really trying to learn your lessons, man, and really trying to take stock in your lessons. And, and also I was becoming a better filmmaker along the way, you know? And so by the time Brim Brew was ready to go, I understood business and, and, and creative. Understood how those two things work together. And I have a partner in Brim Brew who's just really good at the business side of production. And that's what I need. I needed to be with somebody who, who I didn't have to think about or worry about, who, who could come in and do the job and have shared goals and know how to get there. That's the biggest, biggest difference. And we've never had reps. We've never had anybody out to make phone calls for us. We've never done any of that. You know, sometimes we always feel like, ah, oh, should we get some reps? But I've been very fortunate that my reputation has, we just get phone calls. Well, you created some amazing work at the same time. 
but it's still it's still scary at times, you know. And you know, you don't always do great work. Sometimes you you miscalculate. Sometimes you think, oh, this is gonna be amazing. You're like, oh, that's not amazing, mm-hmm. you know. And that's the thing about being a creative is not to believe that everything you create is awesome. You know, don't let your ego blind you. When you when the work you do is not good, it's not that you need to run and tell everybody, oh, that wasn't good. You need to recognize when you didn't do a good job. So I know for me, a lot of times I hold things like, yeah, I'm so close to it. It's hard for me to see if it's not awesome, if I missed the mark. So for you, like, well, how did you develop that skill to know you missed the mark on something? Or did you have someone that you could go to and trust that they're going to tell you the truth if you missed the mark? Well, back in the day when I was cutting my own campaigns and directing my own campaigns, when, I'd be, when I was in the edit room, I had a rule of bringing folks in all the time to take a look at some, but they were never allowed to say anything positive. You're not allowed. And if you didn't have anything negative to say, you got It's all good. But no, like, yo, this is dope. Ah, this, <laughs> that, that's, that's, because it doesn't serve you. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I'm looking for is the consistency in where the problems are. I want to fix the problem. I'm not there to, to, to be the man and to like show off. I'm there to sell someone. There's a, there's a, I need to make sure it's working psychologically and emotionally and that people are buying into this. And so that was just my rule. You could not, you can't say anything positive. Is that something someone taught you or you just always? Or you That's just something I think I figured out for myself because I just figured out like, because I blind. When someone comes in and you're like, yeah, work. And then the next person will come in and try to tell you something. And you're like, he don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> My man over here just told me this shit was dope. <laughs> you know, this dude over here talking about the third act don't work. You know, what do you know? Just if people tell you, if people feel the freedom to tell you, and it feels safe to tell you that, yeah, man, that ain't, mm, I don't think that's working. And if they can tell you why, that's awesome. Sometimes they can't. Sometimes they go, I don't know what it is, man. It just, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't, it just is not hitting me. That's valid. And everybody's creative opinion is valid for them. Doesn't mean that you need to change something, but it's, if you hear it and enough people repeat it, it's like they always say, if enough people are saying it, it's, it's true. Yeah. You know, and also sometimes you don't have the right audience in the room looking. You know, it, like I could have four cats my age look at something. We all think it's amazing. Somebody 24 come in and go, ooh, really? We don't, uh, all right. I mean, you know, know who you're talking to, you know, but be open. Be open to your creative being scrutinized. Doesn't mean you have to change it. Doesn't mean you believe them, but you got to develop a thick skin. I mean, it sounds like you were able to kind of push your ego to the side to allow that space for where people can be critical of your work. I mean, it's hard. And then there are times that you have to check. And, and if people are always going for convention because we like to be spoon fed. So you got to be very clear about what those critiques are. And if it's something about making it more conventional and you and your goal was not to be conventional, and then you have to dismiss it and sometimes you have to stand on it by yourself. 
You know, I doubt people went in and pitched them skills campaigns, you know, or tested those skill campaigns. People like, oh, this is amazing. No, nah, somebody was like, we're going to do some crazy shit and we're just going to put it out there and see what happens. Uh-huh. And you just got to do that. Just got to do that. What has always been, for me, one of the most inspiring things that I've seen in you is that you're never afraid to, like, pivot and do something different. Like, you're comfortable and you're doing commercials, and then all of a sudden now you're directing TV shows. How have you been able to make that transition? You know, I, uh, it's like one of those things where I was very fortunate. Like, HBO, like, you know, like, the first big leap for me in my career was the movie Drop Squad, right? As an intern, a PA, and meeting these brothers and, and what they were about. And it was coming out of a time that was very special for me. I was coming out of college and I was learning. My next leap was when I got to HBO because the program in HBO was not black. Yeah. You know, outside of The Wire and Oz, let's call it what it is, prison and, 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 uh, and, uh, and drugs. And drugs. All the other shows, you know, yeah, we got black, we got smart black people, but they in prison. We got smart black people, but they selling drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, but all the other shows were Sex in the City, um, Six Feet Under, you know, Sopranos, um, all that stuff. So, you know, being there, I worked on all of it. So most people, when they saw my reel, they had no idea I was black. They would assume I was white. And I'm not gonna lie to you, when we started Brown Bag, I would not allow my picture to be taken most places. I didn't want people, I wanted to be judged on my work. You know, and if you thought I was a French white dude, because my name is Maurice Maribel. <laughs> okay, that's all good. The results will come out in the work, you know. So I was just fortunate so that my work didn't have a color spin on it. People just assumed I was white. You know, and then they meet me and they're like, oh, no, this is brother, 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 black, he black. <laughs> you, know? you would show up to set and they would assume you, of course, oh, they always I've assume had, you I've had, I've had, I've had, an, uh, uh, I've had a, a comic, a white comic, who I was doing a special for, like I was doing the campaign for a special, Big Shoot Day. We're literally spending $300,000 on this campaign. Wow. And on this just shoot day, along 250000 on this one shoot day. He comes in and he he said, "Hey, uh, I'm trying to find uh, Mo. Where's Mo? Hey, where's Mo?" He comes in and says, "He's right over there." I turn around and I go, "Hey!" And he looked at me like, "What the? Oh wow! What the fuck?" Like I he and I knew exactly what was happening. He looked at me like, "Okay," and he didn't even shake my hand. He was like, "Hey," and I was like, "Hey." And I said, um, hey, man, we're getting ready. Somebody showed you your dressing room. He said, okay. He called the director friend of his to come to the set. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, HBO was like, what do you want us to do? What do you want to do? I said, no, let him come. And then I fucked with that director for the next hour. I would do things like, I said, and everybody's waiting. And I just looked him in the face. Action. <laughs> Action. And then I did, I would wait to cut. 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 Wow. Then I'd go, what'd you think about that one? Did you like it? Should I do it again? That went on two times, actually, not two hours. 
two takes of that. And he got up and said, I'm out of here. And he went over to his friend, you're good, you're in good hands. I'm out. And then, yeah. A lot of directors or, or people creative probably wouldn't even have been open to allowing that per- if, they, if the client comes to you, what do you want us to do? They're like, I don't want them to come to set. Like, don't allow this director in. Like, No, no, see, we all want to assume we have that power. The, there's two types of power. There's the power where the guy who's special we're shooting really has the power. True. I'm getting paid a salary. <laughs> Very true. You know, they paid him probably a million or two dollars to do this special. They'd be like, Mo, you know, he's not comfortable. You know, and they wouldn't say anything about race. That is like, he really wants this guy. You know, they would, they would not even ever say that. The other power is the power that I have. The fuck with you. So you can come to set. I'd rather get pushed off and said, I'd rather be told to leave than to, than to let this dude just come in and, and you know, he's gonna come in. But he's gonna understand when he leaves, like, fuck you. You know what I mean? Like, that ain't gonna happen. So that's my power, you know? And it doesn't come out of me often, but don't disrespect me because my folks grew up in the Jim Crow South. And one of the things that you learn when your parents grew up in the Jim Crow South is you are no longer owned by anybody, you know, and respect authority. But when somebody disrespects you, you let them know that they can't disrespect you. It's just that simple. Now, just fast forwarding to directing TV shows and coming in to an environment where when you're directing a TV show, it's typically you did direct one or two episodes. So you're coming into an environment where you have a crew of people that have been working together and you just insert in there and you have never had experience directing episodes. How do you go insert yourself in that environment and then become successful at that? Again, when you, when you decide this was my second shot at directing TV shows. I, when I first left HBO, HBO actually helped me get an agent. I was at ICM. Uh, and there was a thought that I was going to go on and do TV. And I wasn't ready. Like, I wasn't emotionally ready. I wasn't, yeah, I just wasn't ready. Because I didn't know. Because I didn't understand it. And it scared me. And so I actually walked away from all that. And then years later, I was like, what am I doing? You know, because commercials were horrible. You know, promos were getting, like, I had reached that place where, uh, at the time, I didn't care about the way I used to. And I needed new challenges. I decided to try my hand at TV again. And, man, the universe works, man. And I'm going to tell you, the pivot happened once again through the culture of other black filmmakers. I was at BET was talking to Celine McKeel. And I was like, man, you know, I, I really want to try to direct TV. He's like, you do? Really? What? Yeah. He goes, huh? just tell me, man, I, you know? And, and he just encouraged me to do it. And he was like, so next season, man, I'll try to get you on. And you never know whether to believe people or not to believe people. So he's like, all right, cool. He encouraged me, but my, the real opportunity happened 
because I got a call from HBO to shoot a promo for Veep. And I didn't really want to do it, but they were like, come on, do this promo. I did the promo. Julia Louise Dreyfus sent an email back to the network because I really love working with Mel. Three months later, another Veep thing came up. And it was a short film for the White House Correspondents' Dinner with Julia playing her character from Veep with Joe Biden. Oh, wow. So I directed a seven-minute comedy. And it hit the airwaves, obviously, because, of course, this is a president. It was all over the news that Monday morning, and BET called me Monday afternoon and said, we're booking you for two episodes of the game. (laughs) (laughs) And so I went and did the game. And they were very supportive. And they were, like, supportive. And um, I made my mistakes, but they were there to help me out. And it was great. Wow. And then I was trying to figure out how to get more work. How do I do it? I didn't have an agent. I didn't have any of that. Um, And then, like, four months later, five five months later, I got a call from HBO. Do you want to do Veep? So I got a chance to direct Veep, one of the greatest comedies in television history, right? And now I'm not gonna say it all went well. I would be lying to say that, but I learned a shitload. And it taught me a lot of things about myself. Taught me a lot of things about, it just, it taught me how to direct. It taught me what I need to focus on. It taught me the type of people I need to work with. It, it just really changed the course of my television career. You know, for obvious reasons, you know, once you do an episode of Veep, everybody's calling you. Yeah. You know, but outside of that, it wasn't the greatest experience for me personally. And it taught me what I would never do again or allow again. And, you know, there was a moment after that that I was like, oh, well, this is short-lived. I loved it for the first two days and I hated it for the last three days. And I'm not going to get too deep into to, to the reason why, but it was just not, I'll put it this way, I didn't feel the support. Okay. You know, I didn't have that kind of nurturing there, you know, that I had on the game, you well, know? I guess my, sorry to interrupt, but my question, were you expecting the support or were there, were there expectations of you to come in there and to be able to do it without the support? It might have been. You don't know. They might have like, you should be, but I mean, they knew I didn't really do a whole lot. And I don't know, you know, whatever it was, it, it just, I, I, I didn't feel supported. You know, I felt like they, they probably think they felt like they did support me, but there's a difference between two kind of supports. And it was just horrible. And I thought for a minute I was going to quit TV. Like I was like, I don't want to do this shit. You know, I don't want to work. I just don't work with those type of people, you know? And I say that, first of all, the writing is amazing. Julia is amazing. The cast is amazing. But it just, it just was not a good fit. So I was like, ah, what am I going to do? I don't want to do this. And not that I wasn't getting calls. I was still getting calls, but I was like, I don't want to do this. My agents, now I'm at WME, and they were like, it's all good, man. It's all good. Don't, you got to let that shit go. It's all good. And then I went and did It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Had a blast and learned a little bit more. And then, and then I went off to do uh, 
Um, and then I went and did Suits. No, I went off and did, after that, I think I did Happen Leonard. No. And I got to do the first two episodes of a, of a new season with all new characters. And the executive producer and the writers let me direct it. Like, half the time they weren't there. <laughs> uh, nobody was telling me how to shoot, what to shoot, how to direct, what to direct, nothing. I got to do it my way. And from that moment on, that's the only way I've been directing TV is the way I want to do it. Oh, wow. And stay within the framework of what a show is, but understanding your power, understanding your vision, understanding how you maneuver, understanding the boundaries, and understanding how to have fun. Just, you know, those first couple of shows, there was anxiety with that. And now I don't have that anxiety. Now I'm just having fun, wow. you know, and so, you know, you go and do that, and then and then you get a call and you start doing Suits. And, you know, I'm thinking Suits has been around for so long, they're not gonna listen to me, da 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 da. There was no showrunner there. There was no writer there. The actors come to the director. They talk to the director. It was another show that I got to do my thing, and and the network and the, and the creator of the show loved my episode so much, they called me literally after the rough cut and said, Stay free. We want, we want to bring you back next year for more episodes. And so I just got into the family of, 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 of that show and that network. And I love those people. Love them. And then, uh, yeah. And then at TBS, you know, doing a show called Wrecked. You know, the guy, I got to come in and put my stamp on it, put my thing on it. And the last OG with Tracy Morgan, I got to come in and do my thing. So it's... You know, I just, for the last year and a half, I just think I've, I've had real fun and real understanding my creative. Not even to say that, understanding how I can affect creative. Understanding my place, understanding my power, understanding relationships and how to maneuver and, and how to, as you say, I had to walk into a show in a space where everybody's been working with somebody different and now you got 60 people looking at you going, prove, prove it, uh -huh. prove it. <clears throat> and being able to say, just watch y'all. <laughs> y'all wanna have fun? Let's go have some fun. And just, and just getting a whole group of people to follow your journey and follow your, uh, follow your vision, I think is, is fun. I have, I have a great time. In, and as you know, which we're probably leading to is now I'm exec producing and directing a show called Brockmire with Hank Azaria, Amanda Pete, and a bunch of other great actors. And, you know, it's, this is my first show where it's on my back for real. Yeah, you're like, directing all 12 episodes. Uh, well, eight, it's eight, eight episodes. episodes. I'm directing all eight episodes and being an EP who has, you know, my focus is really on the on the production side and the creative side. And so just, just shepherding that is, is heavy, it's heavy, but I love it, you know? And who gets a chance to direct an entire season? I know, when you told me, I was like, that's not normal. It's usually a different, you may direct two episodes, you may direct the opening episode, but the whole season isn't normal. So do you have, any anxiety about that? Do you have, 
Like, what type of feelings do you have in and around just directing the entire season? You know, the difference on this show is that, you know, the creator and the writer of the show is also an executive producer, right? So it's, it's, it's balancing your own ego in order to work with the writer in a way that you're okay with the battles that you lose. Like when you want to change something and he's like, I don't, I don't want to change it. And he has that right. He created the show too. Mm-hmm. And so working in that capacity to, to accept your victories and to accept your creative losses and still try to make the best show possible and not allow your ego, not allow your ego to, to, to not do better. Meaning like, if you don't like something, find a way to like it. Find a way to make it great. You know, find a way to believe in it. Find a way to get on board. Yeah. You know, and use your creativity for that. And so I think, you know, so those are the, I think those are the hardest battles for me, but that's, that's the mantra and that's what I'm doing. Um, yeah, do I have anxiety? Of course. <laughs> Dude, it's like I said, it's a season. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a season. So, you know, and I think like, if I fuck up a season, it's over. Like, I'm just like, it's over. <laughs> Cats is like, yeah. You know, and all I can do is take every scene at a time, one scene at a time, one scene at a time, one scene at a time, and just do all the homework. Do it. Do it. Gotta be obsessive. Gotta be obsessive. And hire the right team. I think I think it's going to be a really good season. We have a great team, um, great actors. I just got I just just got to get to the finish line. Yeah. So I only have a few more questions, but before I ask them, one, I just want to thank you for your time. And I know you're preparing for this season, and all this weight is on your shoulders. But for you to take the time out and actually do this with me, I really appreciate. And then I also just want to tell you how much I appreciate just being able to call you, being able to learn from you throughout my career has been certain people that really had a big impact on you. You're definitely one of them. Like seeing how you've always been willing to pivot from one thing to the next and not really being comfortable is, is beyond inspiring. And it's like, I want these lessons, like just stick with me. And, and I hope that I'm able to make those pivots. Well, well you know, first of all, Again, thank you for the kind words, but I, I will say that when we talk about pivot, to me, it's just always looking for the opportunity to grow, right? Always find something to keep you excited because, you know, we can talk about me, but uh, look, dude, you know, we didn't really meet the first time we worked together, right? You know, I met you later and I think you were very, very bold, like, yo, Kevin, we were just talking, like, yo, I'm trying to blah, 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 blah. I just assumed that you was already shooting and you been shooting, <laughs> right? And so, and then I find out later on, I'm in Atlanta trying to buy a house and somebody's telling me, oh yeah, he's still working at Home Depot. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> no, no, he's a photographer. That dude's been, it's like, no, no, he's, what are you talking about? No, he's working over down the road. <laughs> so I'm like, you talk about pivot. First of all, you already know what it is. And, 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 and where were you three years ago, Eric? 
Well, this is about you today. But I just but... asked a question. Where were you three years ago? Three years ago, I was just learning and figuring out how to make this work as a photographer. Right. Yeah. Do you make a living make, uh, shooting photography? I do, fortunately. Right? So, whatever it is, whether I've given some words of encouragement, whether I've answered some of your questions, you know, and I don't take that lightly because I do believe in that. But like I said earlier, nothing happens unless you drive in the train. You know what I'm saying? So it had just been somebody else, you know, or the next person. I'm happy to be a part of that tree, to have to be part of that journey. But in no way, no doubt, do I, do I think you would ever not have made it? Well, I believe that for me, I just believe God puts the right people in your life at the right time. Like you had the gentleman at, I can't think of his name, from Spice Lee Company. At the time, he was the guy that needed to be there. When you were doubting, you had all those men around there to support you to be like, no, you're not taking that midnight train to Georgia. <laughs> so I think when you start walking down that path of your purpose, you end up meeting the right people. And for me, you are one of those right people in my life. So thank you, brother. Thanks. One of my last questions I have for you is over this span of your career and all that you've done, what is it that continues to inspire you to keep creating and not become complacent? And I say, oh, I'm gonna just create promos all the time and just be comfortable in that, it's a good check. I'm gonna just keep doing commercials and be comfortable. Like what makes you continue to push? Boredom. I continue to push because it's inevitable once you do something over and over again, there's a fatigue factor that sets in. Yeah, I don't think there's a, a, there's a, a drive in me that says, all right, you know, Two years, then we got to do something else. I don't have a big chart of like, you know, everybody has a, some people have what they call a, a vision board and mm -hmm. some people have a goal tree where they have their goals and, and in six months I got to do this and in a year I got to, I don't have that. You know, I have what it is I'd like to have, to have accomplished by the time I retire. There's not a, yes, I'd like to do a feature film. But I don't have it like in 2016, 2019, whatever it is that I, I'm not built that way. But the moment that the work starts slacking, the moment that the work is not as fresh and um, innovative as it was when I started doing that type of work, uh, that means I'm bored. It means that I'm taking it for granted, and it means that that I'm no longer inspired by the field that I'm in. And then when you find yourself bored and uninspired, and your work starts to get bad, it affects a whole lot of different things. Yeah, you know. And I do have a family, so I do have a survival thing that I must. You know, my my children and my wife. They're, you know, I'm very blessed because in order to do the type of job I did, or the type of career that I have, I need a lot of understanding. You know, meaning like I'm not home a lot. You know, my kids talk to me a lot on FaceTime. You know, my wife and my family see me leave for months, a month here, four weeks there. 
you know, I think I spent three months total, like if you put it all together last year at home. Wow. You know, that's a lot to ask. It's a lot to ask my wife. It's a lot to ask my children. And for all the people who know me, I'm a very involved dad. You know, so I'm always trying to figure out how to do it better and how to make sure my kids are getting the support that they need. And so a part of my drive to pivot and to do better is to make sure that they're secure. That's on the basic level, you know, and we all need different drivers. I think when you're young, it's to prove something in general that you can do something and then uh, to other people sometimes. And then there's a moment you got to prove it to yourself. And then there's a moment that you got to, you have to do some of it to make sure everybody else is getting what they deserve from supporting your dreams. And then I think the last thing is hopefully I'll get to a phase where I'm back to just doing stuff strictly for the fun of it and to, and to, and to just experiment again, just to like, you know, not care about any rules. You know, right now there are rules. I can't really do something crazy on a TV show. I can't go on TV show and say, I'm going to do crazy. We're just going to shoot this in black and white. <laughs> yeah. You know? But I want to get back there. You know, but yeah. But my pivots and my push forwards is, is a combination of I'm bored. And if I'm bored, that means the work is going to suffer. Which means if the work is going to suffer, I'm going to stop getting hired. If I stop getting hired, my family's going to suffer. So how do I keep pushing? Well, I think on that note, I don't think there's anything else to say. And I appreciate the time. Thank you so much. I, I, I hope there's some stuff in there. Oh, it's a lot. Like, I picked up on a ton of stuff throughout this interview. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please share it with your community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Snapchat. And write a review on iTunes. My goal is to inspire and help as many people as possible. And by you sharing, we will be able to do this together. You can also shoot me an email if you have any suggestions. Thank you for your time.